At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 3, Marxist-Leninism. The last two episodes we spent laying the groundwork leading up to the Cold War, both ideologically and politically. This episode, I want to take a greater dive into Marxist-Leninism before we begin to examine the events of the late 1940s and 1950s. It's important to understand the ideology that shaped the perspectives of the people and leadership of the communist world, so that we may understand more clearly why they made the decisions that they made or held the views that they did. Marxism played a critical role in the Soviet Union and the developing world, as well as left-wing politics in the democratic world during the conflict. From the period of roughly 1950 to 1989, most of the world's population lived under some form of Marxist government. Marxism grew out of the socialist movements in Western Europe and Western philosophical conceptions of equality and community. In many ways, these ideas date back to Plato in ancient Greece, who envisioned a society in which people shared all worldly possessions as well as children and wives. Plato had been inspired by the Spartan society, which was legendary for its aspersions to wealth and its embrace of civic virtue, fraternity, and austerity. Others recently have argued that Christ and early Christianity was socialist in nature, but they overlook the key difference in that Jesus asked his followers to give up their wealth voluntarily And follow him, whereas socialism advocated taking away the possessions of others. It was radical Enlightenment thinkers in France in the 18th century that started calling for the abolition of private property, as they argued it created misery and ill will. In 1649, you had a group in England called the Diggers who seized the king's property and tried to turn it into farmland for the commons. In the early 19th century, there was also appeared from time to time volunteer communes in the West such as the New Harmony of Indiana or the Oneida community. These societies didn't last long for complex reasons beyond the scope of this series. These communities and ideas around equality, however, lacked a formal philosophical structure. Karl Marx would provide the socialist movement this structure. Marx's theories about society, economics, and politics, the collective understanding of which we know as Marxism, holds that human societies progress through class struggle, a conflict between an ownership class that controls production and a laboring class that provides the labor for production. Like we saw in our first episode, Karl Marx was a German philosopher, economist, sociologist, journalist, and revolutionary socialist. Born in Prussia in 1818 into a wealthy middle-class family, Marx studied at the universities of Bonn and Berlin, where he became interested in the philosophical ideas of the young Hegelians. After college, he became involved with a radical newspaper in Cologne, but was soon exiled to Paris. In Paris, Marx continued to study Hegel and write for radical newspapers. It was there that he met his lifelong friend, Frederick Engels, whom he followed to London, where he spent the rest of his life. 
Marx and Engels' friendship would last nearly 40 years and was probably one of the greatest friendships in history. Engels contributed greatly to Marx's works and financially supported him and his family. Following Marx's death in 1883, Engels edited and published many of his unpublished works. Marx was greatly influenced by German philosophy and Hegel's conception of history. Hegel saw history as a process or historical dialectic by which humanity was moving towards a state of absolute spirit or self-actualization and an idealized state of cultured rationality. Thus, Hegel argued society was moving towards ever greater political freedom and rationality. Hegel contended that in the Oriental period, only the ruler was free, as in ancient Babylon. In antiquity, the civilizations of Greece and Rome, the wealthy became free. In Hegel's time, the French and American revolutions sought to bring freedom to the wider society. Hegel thus saw history as the clash of ideas. Ideas like feudalism and capitalism would clash until one triumphed over the other. These ideas would create a synthesis with some elements of the new and the old until the system was challenged yet again. Marx turned these ideas on their head. Marx argued that Hegel was right that history was moving towards a predetermined end, but it wasn't ideas that pushed history forward, but economics or the material world. Marx argued that economics shaped societies and ideas and not the other way around. But Marx, like Hegel, did believe that man would reach an idealized end, communism, or positive humanism, where man lived in harmony with fellow man and woman in a community where the evils of greed, alienation, and private property would be wiped away. It's important to note that Engels and Marx used the words communism and socialism interchangeably in their writings. Many Marxist scholars have come to the conclusion that socialism, vaguely speaking, was the transitionary stage of development before communism. Marx believed that material conditions shaped the society, including social relations, political and legal systems, morality, and ideology. The economic system and these social relations form a base and superstructure. As forces of production, most notably technology, improve, existing forms of social organization become inefficient and stifle further progress. Marx considered these socioeconomic conflicts as the driving force of human history, since these recurring conflicts have manifested themselves as distinct transitional stages of development in Western Europe. Accordingly, Marx designates human history as encompassing six stages of development and relations of production. The first stage, primitive communism, is a cooperative tribal society. The second stage, slave society, is a development of the tribal to city-state. Aristocracy is born. For this, think of ancient Rome. The third stage, feudalism, Aristocrats are the ruling class. Merchants in this stage evolve into capitalists. The fourth stage, capitalism. Capitalists are the ruling class who create and employ the proletariat. The fifth stage, socialism. Workers control the government and regulate the economy. Communism, the final stage. The state wastes away and the workers work together through free association. Marx therefore divided modern society into four distinct classes. The first class at the bottom of the social pyramid was the workers, or the proletariat, who owned very little beyond their own labor power for income. They were the farmers, factory workers, and what we would call today the working poor, forever hardworking and forever impoverished. A step above them was the petty bourgeoisie, 
This was a class comprised of skilled workers like lawyers, bureaucrats, police officials, small merchants, and those who aspired to be bourgeois or who were loyal to the existing bourgeois capitalist order, either because they had some investment in seeing it continue or were brainwashed into supporting it, what Marx called false consciousness. These individuals have excessive capital beyond their needs, but must continue to work or they will find themselves impoverished, basically what we in America call the middle class. The next level above them was the bourgeoisie, who were individuals who own assets or the means of production to generate revenue. These individuals own businesses that employed the labor of the proletariat and or petit bourgeois and have excess capital to live beyond their means. This would be the guy that owns a McDonald's franchise or a car dealership. Finally, you have the capitalists. These, are the, these people are the Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerbergs, and Jamie Dimons of the world. They control huge corporations that employ thousands of proletariat and petty bourgeois. These individuals, Marx believed, control the society. Therefore, the state was run on behalf of the capitalist class and the bourgeoisie. Marx predicted that, like previous socioeconomic systems, capitalism produced internal tensions. The capitalists exploited the workers because of the ever-growing drive for greater and greater profits in the competition between capitalists. These conditions would eventually lead to violence as the proletariat were exploited to such a degree that revolution was their only recourse. This class war would lead to the destruction of the bourgeois capitalism and its replacement by a system, new system, socialism, eventually establishing a class of society, communism, a society governed by a free association of producers. Marx actively fought for the implementation of socialism, helping to organize and inspire workers, arguing that the working class should carry out organized revolutionary action to topple capitalism and bring about socioeconomic change. After Marx's death in 1883, Frederick Engels became the editor and translator of Marx's writings, along with his own work, The Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State, 1884, analyzing monogamous marriage as guaranteeing male social domination of women, a concept analogous in communist theory to the capitalist class economic domination of the working class. Engels made intellectually significant contributions to feminist theory and Marxist feminism. Since Engels' death in 1895, Marxism has since developed into different branches and schools of thought, and there is no single definitive Marxist theory. Different schools place greater emphasis on certain aspects of classical Marxism while de-emphasizing or rejecting other con aspects, and sometimes combine Marxist analysis with non-Marxist concepts. As a result, different schools of Marxism might reach contradictory conclusions from one another. In this series, we will be looking primarily at five types of socialism. Democratic socialism, Marxist-Leninism, Stalinism, Maoism, and revolutionary socialism in the West and developing world. Democratic socialism were followers of Marx who believed that socialism could be achieved by democratic means. These Marxists pointed to Marx's belief that achieving socialism through democratic means might be possible in certain countries like Britain and the United States. Already in Marx and Engels' lifetime, Marxist parties such as the Social Democrats in Germany and other social socialist parties in Europe came into existence in the 1860s and 1870s. These parties would play a role in the Cold War as they sought to be a middle ground between the violent Marxist-Leninism of the Soviet Union and the consumer capitalism of the United States. Many would be key in standing up to the Soviet aggression as well, 
such as the British Labour Party and later the Socialists under Mitterrand in France. However, many socialists criticized these parties as sellouts. They argued that these, quote, socialist parties lost the revolutionary nature and became corrupted and invested in the bourgeois political process. This issue would invariably split the Marxist movement into two camps, those who argue that socialism should be achieved via democratic means and those who believe that the only way was through violent revolution. The violent revolutionary means was advocated by Lenin and the Bolsheviks, who we saw in our last episode, came to power in the October Revolution of 1917 in Russia. Marxist-Leninism was a philosophy built on Marxism and developed in the Soviet Union post-Lenin. In the 1920s, when Joseph Stalin and his supporters gained control of the Russian Communist Party, they rejected the notions common amongst Marxists at the time of world revolution as a prerequisite for building socialism in Russia and of a gradual transition from capitalism to socialism signified by the introduction of the first five-year plan. Like we spoke about in our last episode, many Marxists believed in a global socialist revolution was necessary before socialism could be built in any individual nation. However, Marxist-Leninism did continue to advocate revolution in other nations when practical. Marxist-Leninism believed that the socialist state represented a dictatorship of the proletariat, as to oppose to that of the bourgeoisie, and governed by a party of the revolutionary vanguard, i.e. the Communist Party. Through the process of democratic centralism, it sought the development of socialism into the full realization of communism, a classless social system with common ownership of the means of production with full-scale equality of all members of the society. Marxist-Leninism also saw large-scale growth of the bureaucracy and state power in the Soviet Union, far beyond what it had been in Tsarist times. As the Soviet Union grew older, the power and size of the state continued to expand in contrast to Marxist philosophy, which believed that the state would fade away. In many ways, this created a new class of government managers and bureaucrats who replaced the Russian bourgeoisie and aristocrats as the real owners of the means of production and the economy in the Soviet Union, in contrast to Marxist ideology where the workers and peasants were supposed to own the means of production. Stalinism in the Soviet Union came to displace Marxist-Leninism for a time, although arguably it was more of a progression of Marxist-Leninism in a certain philosophical direction than it was a new ideology. Under Stalinism, the Soviet Union pursued a policy of mass heavy industrialization, building steel mills, factories, dams, canals, and power plants. Stalin believed he had to build up and modernize the Soviet economy in order to build a modern military for reasons we outlined in our last episode namely fear of other nations like Germany, Britain, the United States, and Japan. In the countryside, the Soviet Union pursued a policy of forced collectivization. Kulaks, or those peasants who were marginally better off than their neighbors, were systematically wiped out as a class. The remaining peasants were required to give up their property and the few personal belongings they had and forced to work on collective farms under harsh conditions. It's important to understand on these collective farms, people didn't work for each other or the community. They labored for the state and the glory of the Soviet Union. Those regions who resisted, like the Ukraine, were systematically starved to death. Stalin more or less pushed the Russian peasants into a technocratic form of serfdom, suspending what little rights that they had enjoyed since 1861. Census data during this time period, from 1932 to 1939, 
tells us that the Soviet Union lost between 9 to 10 million people. Stalin's regime was a totalitarian state under his dictatorship. Stalin exercised extensive personal control over the Communist Party and unleashed an unprecedented level of violence to eliminate any potential threat to his regime. While Stalin exercised major control over political initiatives, their implementation was in the control of localities, often with local leaders interpreting the policies in a way that best served themselves. This abuse of power by local leaders exacerbated the violent purges and terror campaigns that were carried out by Stalin against members of the party deemed to be traitors. Stalin unleashed the Great Terror Campaign against allegedly socially dangerous and counter-revolutionary persons that resulted in the Great Purge of 1936-38, to during which 1.5 million people were arrested and 681,000 of those were executed. The Stalinist era saw the introduction of a system of forced labor camps of convicts and political dissidences known as the Gulag system. About 14 million people were in the Gulag labor camps from 1929 to 1953. The estimates for the period 1918 to 1929 are even more difficult to calculate, given the lack of records during the period. According to a 1993 study of archival Soviet data, a total of 1,053,000 people died in the Gulag from 1934 to 1953. There is no archival data for the period 1919 to 1934. However, taking into account the likelihood of unreliable record-keeping and the fact that it was common practice to release prisoners who were either suffering from incurable diseases or near death, non-state estimates of the actual gulag death toll are usually higher. Some independent estimates are as low as 1.6 million deaths during the, the whole period from 1929 to 1953, while other estimates go beyond 10 million. Most gulag inmates were not political prisoners, although significant numbers of political prisoners could be found in the camps at any one time. Petty crimes and jokes about Soviet government and officials were punishable by imprisonment. About half of the political prisoners in the Gulag camps were imprisoned without trial. Official data suggests that there were over 2.6 million sentences to imprisonment on cases investigated by the secret police through 1921 to 1953. As one popular joke from the period went, a man arrived at the camp gate. The guard asked him how long he was sentenced to. The man replied, 25 years. The guard replied, what did you do? The man said, nothing. The guard replied, that can't be. It's a 10-year sentence for doing nothing. Stalin also controlled the media. He moved beyond just censoring the press. All media and propaganda was tightly controlled. The press was told what to write and how to write about it. To put it simply, Hitler burned books that didn't agree with Nazism, whereas Stalin had the books rewritten, if they didn't agree with Stalinism. Photographs were not burned or destroyed if they had traitors in them. Instead, the traitors were removed from the photographs and the pictures were placed back in the archive. Therefore, it was as if they never existed in the first place. Many have claimed that Stalin wasn't a Marxist, but a megalomaniac. However, this flies in the face of the evidence. Stalin was a loyal and popular party member for decades and was well-liked by Lenin and hand-picked by him as his successor. The despotic powers Stalin used were put in place by Lenin, who, as we have seen, actively advocated the use of mass violence to achieve political ends. Some have argued that Lenin wrote a letter towards the end of his life warning of the dangers of Stalin. However, the validity of the letter has been in question, as well as Lenin's mental health 
in his last years of life. As we will see, with the death of Stalin in 1953, Nikitich Khrushchev gradually ascended to the power in the Soviet Union and announced a radical policy of de-Stalinization of the Communist Party and the country, condemning Stalin for excesses of, and tyranny. Gulag force camps were dismantled. Anti-Stalinist figures, were, such as Solzhenitsyn, were allowed the freedom to criticize Stalin. The cult of personality associated with Stalin was eliminated. Stalinists were removed from office, the, and the policy of de-Stalinization was promoted as an attempt to restore the legacy of Lenin. Despite these changes, one-party rule and censorship remained in place, as well as the institutions like the KGB, which it had carried out the terror under Stalin. Internationally, Khrushchev ended Stalin's policy of socialism in one country and committed the Soviet Union to actively supporting communist revolutions throughout the world. However, the Soviet Union, as we will see, did adopt the policy of detente, stating that global war was no longer necessary for the global triumph of communism. By the late 1950s, though, the Soviet Union no longer dominated the communist world ideologically as it once did. China under Mao challenged the, the orthodoxy of Marxist-Leninism and Khrushchev's critique of Stalin. Mao challenged traditional Marxism, contending that the ideas shape material reality and not the other way around. Mao also favored the peasants over the factory workers as a leading revolutionary class. Moreover, Mao argued it would not be Europe or the West that achieved communism first, but the peoples of the developing world in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. These beliefs, in addition to the Soviet Union's embrace of detente, brought about a falling out between Moscow and Mao. Mao rejected the belief that violence was no longer necessary to move forward the global struggle. Mao disregarded MAD, or mutually assured destruction, and famously critiqued American nuclear weapons as paper tigers or devices by which the Americans tried to scare the developing world. Mao, like Stalin, followed a policy of mass industrialization and forced collectivization with similar disastrous consequences. In this series, we will also be looking at different forms of revolutionary socialism that played out in the developing world and later in the West as these groups fought to overturn their local governments or fight against colonial powers. Figures like Franz Fanon, a revolutionary Marxist philosopher, and Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, inspired liberation movements throughout the developing world with their belief that people of color were not just materially caught up in the web of capitalism, but mentally they experienced a false consciousness which caused a paralysis in their attempts to free themselves from colonial repression. Fanon and others felt that violence had to be used not only to physically free themselves from colonialism, but to free themselves spiritually from the yoke of imperialism. We will also look at the Marxist movements in the West, like the German Red Army Faction and the Weathermen in the United States, who sought to overturn Western governments and establish Marxist states in the West. Like Fanon, they believed that violence and acts of terror were the only way to wake up the working class and bring about the downfall of their local bourgeois capitalist governments. Before I end today, I wanted to respond to a question that was sent to me from our last episode. A question was asked in our last episode about the relationship between anarchism and socialism or communism. Like communism, anarchism shared the vision of a classless, stateless society which was to be achieved through violent revolution. However, they differed in that they disagreed with Marxism in that they favored the peasants and the unemployed over urban workers. 
Second, they disagreed with the Marxist transitionary stage of socialism and believed that any, quote, dictatorship of the proletariat or workers' state would result in a bureaucratic dictatorship of the technocrats and intellectuals, leading to the violent suppression of the workers and peasants. Anarchism believed in the free association of individuals and voluntary institutions in a stateless society. The anarchists and Marxists, along with other leftists, often worked together but also fought each other from time to time. Like in Barcelona in 1937, when the Spanish communists clashed with anarchists in street battles during the Spanish Civil War. Despite these ideological differences, many in the Western democracies viewed them at best as allies of the socialist movement, or worse, as more dangerous. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 3, Marxist-Leninism. Join us for Episode 4, The Cold War in Eastern Europe, 1945-1950, to where we will be diving into the opening stages of the Cold War. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast. To find our latest news and Cold War content, or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail.com, coldwarpodcast, one word. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.